and my parents were married in Holland and immediately boarded a ship to come to Canada, and I was born nine months later. My aunt and her husband followed us a few years later, but they were the only family we had in the area. My grandparents would visit years later occasionally, but I wouldn't have a relationship with them because I didn't speak Dutch. I was raised in a religious family that promoted having large families, and we ended up having seven kids, all boys. Thus, I was tasked with helping my mom raise the kids. At age four, my parents bought their first house. It was on the service road of a busy highway. And we went to bed with the noise of the cars and trucks driving by, as well as watching the headlights flash across the ceiling of the bedroom. My birthday is at the end of the year, and thus I started school when I was four years old. I enjoyed school well enough, but I did have challenges. I had a speech impediment. I stuttered. I also had a lot of fear in me because I couldn't speak to adults outside of a very loud whisper up until grade three and four. I remember in grade one, my parents bought me a brand new bag of alley to play with at school. One day I came home and announced that I'd made a trade. I traded my brand new bag of alleys for three large alleys. While I was impressed, they weren't too impressed. In grade two, I realized I wasn't as smart as the other kids. The teacher was having spelling bees once a week, and for every student that had a perfect spelling test, they would get a star next to their name on the bulletin board. Well, after many weeks, I had no stars next to my name. I was unable to get a perfect spelling test, and I was sad about that. So I came home crying one day, and my mother went to see the teacher. She asked if she would put a star next to my name just for trying, but she wouldn't. It was in grade two that a very traumatic event took place in my life. My brother and I went to the corner store to get my mom some things. And when we got there, there were a group of boys there. And they started making fun of my looks. And it really upset me. And we came home and I was crying. And my mother went back to that store and she told those boys off. And that event marked the beginning of many years of teasing about my looks and about my stuttering. I remember a time in grade three where the teacher asked me to go to the chalkboard and write out a, a long word, and I did so. But I made a mistake or two, and she asked me to correct the mistake. And I proceeded to wipe off the whole word and start all over again. And she let out a big sigh when I did that because all I had to do was just wipe away a couple of letters and fix it. It was around that time that the principal asked to speak with my parents. And so my parents brought me with them to see the principal. The principal had me sit outside of her office and she invited my parents into her office and she proceeded to tell them, I am sorry to have to tell you this, but your son Vincent is never going to amount to anything. And I guess she was just going by what she saw. She saw a student who couldn't speak to adults, a student who wasn't that smart, a student who didn't communicate well with his peers, 
and she was just preparing my parents to not expect too much out of my life. Starting in grade three, I would make extra money by going on bottle hunts. Usually I would just walk in the ditches in the long grass and, and try and feel for bottles in the long grass. And occasionally I would come across a group of young people and I would, as I was approaching them, I would contort my face as if to appear ugly so that they would have pity on me and not tease me. I was that afraid of being teased by other kids. So here I was. I couldn't learn right, I didn't talk right, and I didn't look right. Although life was hard in many respects, I still enjoyed my life. I enjoyed collecting sports cards, and back then we could collect more cards by shooting cards with your friends. You could shoot your cards against a wall, and if you did it a certain way, and the player who shot the best cards ended up walking away with all the cards thrown. Although I wasn't a good student academically, there was a bright spot in my grade school years, and that was in grade four, when the teacher announced that the school superintendent was gonna visit the class. And what she requested is for each student to write out a letter to the superintendent, and the best letter would be given to the superintendent when he came to visit. And out of all of the student letters that were written, mine was chosen to be given to him. Now I was tasked with rewriting my letter with no mistakes. I tried three times to write that letter, and I could not write it without mistakes. And so the second place girl had to write the letter out for me. During those years, I showed an interest in mechanical things. And so one of the toys that were out in those years was a toy called Mechano and you could buy Meccano so that you could build things with it. They gave you small nuts and bolts and pieces of metal and plates, and what I would often do is build cars with it. And then I would attach an axle and wheels, and then I would attach an elastic band and wind it up and watch that car race on the kitchen floor. From there, I began taking an interest in bicycles. I learned how to maintain them, and I also learned how to customize them. I would take the hacksaw and cut off the forks off older bicycles and hammer them into the forks of my good bicycle and then I would have a chopper. I was proud of myself and I was the self-proclaimed bikeatologist. It was in grade four that I took a paper route and within two years I was able to save enough money to pay for my own flight to Holland and back with my mom. At age nine, my dad enrolled me in Cub Scouts, and I proceeded to work on getting different badges. But instead of working my way up slowly to the more difficult badges, I decided to set my sights on achieving the most difficult badge, which was the Tawny Star. And after a number of months of working on it, I finally achieved my Tawny Star. Growing up, I always liked to make things, and twice I made a guitar and we had a hill not too far from where we lived, and so a couple of times I built go-karts that we could ride going down the hill. One Sunday night, when me and my brothers were play-fighting with my dad, I felt inspired to say, this week I'm going to build a bicycle out of wood. I'm not sure where that idea came from, but it never materialized. As the years went on, my dad would entrust me with mowing the lawn and that required gassing up and starting and running the old lawn boy lawnmower. 
And while it was running, I noticed that a little lever, if you moved it up or down, it would rev up the engine and make a lot of noise. So I love taking that little throttle lever and moving it up and down and making all kinds of noise. It was around grade six when my brother and I found another way to make money, and that was by being caddies at a local golf course. While it was great to learn a new skill and make good money, it didn't come without its challenges. It required me to be social, and I always had a problem speaking. But when I would speak, my words would come out all mixed up, and people would always say to me, you don't know what you're talking about. Life did have its challenges for me back then, but a bright spot took place in grade 7, in that I found a best friend. We hung out together all the time. We'd have sleepovers, and they had a pool table in the basement, and whenever we played pool, we would play our favorite albums. My friend's family had a cottage up north, and they would take me with them, and there we would go fishing and water skiing. It was a great time. But that would all come to an end, because in April of my great eighth year, my parents announced that they had purchased some land and that they were going to build a house. My dad felt that uh, having now seven boys in the family, that the boys needed room to romp and play and enjoy their lives. And so that spring and summer, I helped my father build our new house. And two weeks before my grade nine high school year started, we moved into the country. Living in the country is great. And we moved into the fruit belt. And just beyond the six acres of land that my dad had purchased were fields and orchards of fruit. And I loved fruit. So for me, it was like a taste of heaven living there. But again, it didn't come without its challenges. You see, I was away from my best friend and all my other friends who I knew and had my back. I was now all alone to fend for myself. During those two weeks before school started, my parents found out about a religious school that was in a distant city, and they decided that I needed to go to this school. So when the first day of school arrived, my parents told me that they had to enroll all the other boys in their schools in the town, and they asked me if I would just go on the school bus and take my paperwork with me and then enroll myself at the registrar's office when I got to the school. And so the school bus stopped at my place and all five foot two of me went on the school bus with strange people going to a strange school in a strange city. And after an hour and 15 minutes, we finally arrived to my new school and I enrolled myself. And that bus ride was a taste of what the next four years of my life would be like, taking hour and 15 minute long bus rides there and back to school every day. And because I was new and because I was shy and because I couldn't speak well, I got teased. And so I just settled into a lifestyle of just getting on the bus and sitting in my seat next to the window and just staring out the window and thinking. All the other kids were laughing and playing cards and having fun, but I was just staring out the window. While life was stressful at school, life in the country was fun. There was a large family just up the street who had a farm, and they had three boys a little older than me. And those boys did things that most farm boys would do. 
they raced old cars in the orchards. And every day after school, my brothers and I would go over to that farm and talk to those boys. And if they decided that day to go for a run in the fields with their vehicles, then we'd be pestering them for rides. One day we asked them for a ride and they said, yeah, sure, come on in, let's go for a ride. So me and my two brothers went with them in that dune buggy for a ride. And they drove and drove and drove. They drove to the other end of their farm. And they stopped the vehicle and they said to us, boys, okay, boys, now get out. We go, what? They said, yep, get out. You guys always pester us for rides. Here, get out. You can walk back. During the summer, my brothers and I would lament that we didn't have our own vehicles. We had all this land that we could ride on, but we didn't have our own vehicles. And we wish we could just get our own motorcycle or something. The whole reason my dad bought the land and put us out in the country was for us to have fun. And in the early spring of my grade ninth year, our family went to visit friends of my parents. And they happened to have a, an old homemade go-kart sitting in their garage. And my dad ended up buying that go-kart for us. True, we had to run that go-kart on the road, but we were safe about it. Then during the following summer, one of the boys from that farm traded one of their old farm cars for an old motorcycle, an old 1962 Jawa 125. But I never saw them ride that thing. It was a beast. Someone had put extended front forks on it, so it was a 125cc chopper. As ugly as that bike looked, I knew it would be in my price range. And the boy said he wanted $35 for it. So my dad and I went halves on that. $17.50 each of us. And I was able to take that bike home. The first thing I had to do was take a hacksaw and cut 8 inches off the forks. Then I had to bring the forks to the local welding shop so that he could weld the cap of the fork back onto the shortened fork. And now with the shortened forks I could at least touch the ground when sitting on the bike. Then I filled it up with gasoline and brought it back to the boy who sold it to me and asked him to help me start it. The Kickstarter didn't work on it, so it had to be push started. It also needed a clutch cable, so I made use of an old bicycle brake cable to operate the clutch. So my friend said, get on and I'll push you, and then you just have to dump the clutch. Well, we got going and I dumped the clutch, but nothing happened. It wouldn't start. My friend said it might not have spark. He said, take out the spark plug and then put your finger in the spark plug cap and I'll push you. Well, I wasn't about to do that. That would cause a big shock to my finger. He said, there's no other way. So I did it, and sure enough, there was no spark. So I just pushed the bike home. I didn't really know what to do to fix the spark problem. All I did was take a toothbrush and some Varsol and tried cleaning everything that was electrical on that bike. Well, whatever I did was enough to make it spark again. So once again, my friend said, get on and I'm going to push you. And then you just dump the clutch and we'll see what happens. And sure enough, when I dumped the clutch, that bike burbled to life and propelled me down the path of the farm. That was so exciting. For a whole week, I ran that bike all over the place until it finally died. That next fall when school started, the bus picked up a new kid starting grade nine who also had an interest in motorcycles. And he liked Jawas. And so he had an old 1961 Honda 55cc step-through bike that needed a lot of work. And so we traded bikes. 
I proceeded to take the engine out of that bike and, and brought it to my uncle's place. And he spent the remaining part of the fall and early winter in replacing all the gaskets of the engine. The bike needed a muffler, so he ordered a new muffler for it as well. I finally got the motor back in February of my grade 10th year. I installed the engine and the muffler, made sure it got spark. And because the Kickstarter had broken off of that bike as well, it had to be push started. My brothers push started me down the road and it fired up and it took off. And that bike proceeded to give my brothers and me a lot of fun. And that was the beginning of buying and selling a lot of motorcycles during my high school years, as well as providing countless hours of dirt bike riding throughout all the orchards. Around grade 10, the younger of the three boys that lived on the farm up the road and I went tent speeding downtown. We noticed this driveway that had an, an old ratty Honda step-through motorcycle. And I said to my friend, go knock on the door and see if that bike's for sale. And he said, no, you go up to the door and knock and see if the bike's for sale. I said, I can't because I stutter. But he was insistent. He said, no, you knock on the door and you see if it's for sale. He knew I had to learn how to conquer my own fears. Not everything about my high school years revolved around motorcycles and go-karts. Pretty girls caught my eye as well. There was a girl that lived up the road from us, and we became friends, and we'd pick fruit together, and we'd hang out at the local pool together, and all in all, she was just a lot of fun to be around. And it didn't take long for me to fall in love with her. I wanted to get to know her better, and so one day I decided to call her, and it was her who picked up the phone. But when I tried to say hello to her, I couldn't say her name. People who have speech impediments always have certain words that they can't say, so they try and find other words to t replace those words. But there was no other word I could say for her name. So I just hung up the phone. And that would be the extent of our relationship. Just friends. In the fall of grade 10, my phys ed teacher was a gruff football coach, and he asked to see me in his office. He sat me down in a chair and very pointedly asked me this. I noticed that you don't speak with the other boys. Why is that? My answer to him was, Sir, the way I look at it is if I don't bother them, they won't bother me. And that was the end of the conversation. Later that fall, my English class teacher announced that students were going to be doing presentations this year. And I saw a few kids give their presentations and I thought I could never give a presentation in front of the class. So I talked to my parents about it and we agreed that I would step down to a lower phase English. So I went from phase three English to phase two English so I could avoid having to give a presentation. The fall of grade 11 came around and that always meant that there would be new bus riders on the school bus. And it just so happened that about a half a mile after the bus picked me up, it picked up a couple of grade nine boys. And it didn't take long for them to realize that I was a shy kid and they too would make fun of me. Every morning they'd get on the bus and in a loud voice they'd say, Good morning, Vince. How you doing? And I would blush and I just wish they'd shut up and sit down. That year brought another new kid on the bus about 10 miles away from us. And he too was incessantly teasing me. It was like I had a sign on my forehead that said, Tease me. The bullying was so severe that sometimes it would end up in fistfights. I was now in grade 12 and, and I had become a familiar customer at one of the local auto parts stores and they recognized that I had a flair for mechanical things. 
and they offered me a job behind the parts counter, but because of my stuttering, I declined. My dad had spent most of his career in the construction business, either as a carpenter or as an estimator. After moving into the country, he found a job working for the carpenters union. But after a few years, his back gave out and he was confined to bed for about a two year period. With God's help, he got well again and decided to do light carpentry work. And he invented the idea of overlaying existing kitchens with a thin oak veneer and outfitting them with new oak cabinet doors. He called it kitchen refacing. And that's what he did for the rest of his career. My mom would help by working at display booth at the malls and finding customers that way. It was now the fall of my first college year. At that point, I was a lead hand at another farm just up the road from where I was living. And it was grape season. We had about 10 grape pickers and each of us worked in pairs. And I happened to be working with this one girl. She was 14 and I was 17. And for some reason, it was quite easy for me to talk with her. And we picked grapes and talked the whole day through. And that went on for a few Saturdays. And it was fun. A few more weeks went by and we started to really like each other. And her best friend went up to me once and said, She really likes you, you know. I figure you guys are good for six months. And I liked her just as much. And I decided we should go on a date. We decided to go to a movie. And so I picked her up, no problem. We were driving to the theater, no problem. But as I stepped into the theater with this girl, I froze up. I became totally self-conscious that people would see me with a girl. And I could hardly pay for the tickets and walk to where our seats were. I was frozen with fear. It was horrible. And I'm sure she had a horrible time as well. And so what might have been a six-month relationship ended up to be a one-night date. And I don't remember ever speaking to her again after that. My first college year started, and it was just really awkward for me. I just didn't know how to talk to people casually. The class worked hard at coming together. We decided to form our own hockey team, and so we had jerseys made up, and we played against other classes. But the program was a brand new program, and it really wasn't that well established or designed at that point. And I eventually decided just to quit the course. So in February of that next year, I quit the course. At that point, I decided to get a job. And I took on a menial job at a local poultry-based processing shop in town. I had to work with four other ladies, so it was interesting working there. They did their best to bring me out of my shell, but it was still difficult. By then, my younger brother had got his motorcycle license, and he too was riding motorcycles on the street. And one sunny Sunday morning, my brother was riding his motorcycle, passing an intersection with a church on the corner. But a car from the other side ran a stoplight and hit my brother on his motorcycle, and the impact threw him onto the church lawn during a Sunday morning service. The service was stopped, and the pastor came out to pray for my brother. And it turned out that my brother had already known a few of the boys that attended that church. The impact of the crash had broken my brother's leg in several places, and he had to wear a full leg cast for five months. It was at this time that I got to meet a few of the boys that went to that church. And they would always invite me to their church, and, and I would always invite them to my church. 
but their church had a Sunday evening service, and so one Sunday evening I decided to attend their church service. And it was really nice. Everyone was friendly and happy, and I decided to go back the next Sunday night. And so for six months, I would go to my church on Sunday mornings, and I would go to their church Sunday evenings. Every Sunday evening after the sermon, the pastor would give an invitation to anyone who wanted to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. He would tell the people that according to John 3.16, that men must be born again in order to find forgiveness for their sins and have a relationship with God. And so one Sunday evening, I went forward to receive Christ as my personal Savior. After that, they gave me a Bible, and I proceeded to start reading the Bible every night before I went to bed. A couple of years prior to this, my parents had experienced a spiritual awakening, since the Holy Spirit seemed to be working in many of the denominations at that time. But they felt that their denomination wasn't changing with the spiritual times, and they became frustrated. So when they saw all the love that this church was pouring on their son, they decided to switch churches. That menial job influenced me to go back to school. So I enrolled in a mechanical design drafting course. I was still working with mechanical things, but on paper. And fortunately, there were some students who were also into motorcycles. And occasionally I would bring my motorcycle to their area and we'd go dirt bike riding together. I did very well in that program and took first place after the first year. A popular car during my high school and college days was the Volkswagen Beetle. It was highly respected for its durability and was my choice for my first car and for my third car. And it became an easy way for me to make some extra money by just buying and selling Volkswagen Beetles. They were usually snapped up by buyers pretty quickly. But it wasn't a very powerful vehicle. But in the fall of my second year of college, I came up with an idea on how to make a powerful Volkswagen Beetle. And that was to transplant the body onto the chassis of a six-cylinder vehicle. After going to the library to see what vehicles had a similar wheelbase to the Volkswagen Beetle, I discovered that mid-60s Ford flat-nose vans had a similar wheelbase. So I went and bought one for $50. I was excited about my idea and called it the Vanderbug. It never occurred to me how difficult it would be to install a Volkswagen body onto this chassis. I just looked at the end result, a Volkswagen Beetle with a six-cylinder engine. I had this small canister acetylene torch kit that enabled you to bronze weld thin plate sheets as well as burn through sheet metal. It used little pellets that you would put into the canisters. And so I lit the torch and began to burn through the sheet metal of the body on this old van. And one set of pellets enabled me to burn through about 10 inches of this van body. At that point, I knew I needed a regular oxygen and acetylene torch set. But that was late fall and winter was coming. And so I put that project on hold. During the fall of the second year of college, a few of us went dirt bike riding together, and I fell off my bike and got injured. That put me out of commission for a few weeks. During that second school year, they had a tool design contest, and the week before they announced the contest, they taught us the importance of trying to use off-the-shelf items when creating tooling. 
and the teacher displayed a clamp with a rotating arm. So when they announced the contest parameters, I immediately thought back to that clamp that they had displayed the week before and thought this is the perfect tool to use to create this jig. And so for the next two months, students in their spare time were working on their project, secretly drafting their designs. And I was convinced that everyone was going to use the same item for their design. And one morning I arrived late because of a delay in traffic, and they all announced to me that I had won first place in the contest. Nobody else thought of using that clamp or their tooling jig. One of the final projects for the college course was a presentation that each student had to give. I chose to speak on ball bearings and worked diligently to create this presentation. But when it came to my turn to give my presentation, I was able to say the first line, but then I froze and I was forced to sit down. After graduating, I was able to find my first job at a small tool and die shop. They had recently completed construction of a nice office on a second floor mezzanine and outfitted it with a new drafting table. And that's where I worked. I was all alone. And I was fine with it for a number of months. But eventually I got tired of working alone. I wanted to get to know other people. But the hardest part about that job was that they had a female shop worker who would come in and clean the office every Friday. And that created a lot of anxiety for me because I didn't know how to talk to people, let alone young single ladies. I would fumble my way through, but it was so uncomfortable. During the fall of me finishing my college course, I took an interest in hovercrafts. I was intrigued how they could just float over land effortlessly, and I decided to build one. I looked at plans for a while and eventually decided that I would just build my own and that I would use a Volkswagen engine to power it. And so I went ahead and ordered a wood propeller to be made for it. I also bought some used one inch by one inch hollow structural steel tubes with which to use for the frame. That would require me to get a, an oxygen and acetylene welder. And so I bought one. I was gonna make it six feet by 10 feet. And so I began welding up this box frame. I was so excited about this project that I told my boss at the farm, and he even came over and had a look at it. But by this time, we were heading into the fall and the weather was getting a little cooler, and I put that project on hold. While working, I did get to know a guy in the shop, and he too was into motorcycles. And one day we decided to go to a motorsport weekend where there was motorcycle road racing. And what a time we had listening to the sound and smelling the smells. It was exciting. A couple of years before that, my grandmother had sent me a postcard for my birthday, and it was a picture of a, a red Aramaki 250 racing motorcycle leaning into a turn. And now after seeing this road race, I was inspired to build my own racer, and I did. I bought an old 1966 Suzuki X6 250 with a twin-cylinder two-stroke engine, just like the one I rode in high school. This project required me to make phone calls during the day to find parts to create this motorcycle. And even though my boss didn't want me to use my phone for private calls, I couldn't help myself. I had to source out these components in order to build this racer. 
At that time in my life, if I had an idea in my mind, I had to focus on it and get through it before I could refocus on other things. I had very little self-control when it came to my thinking in those days. That bike took me five months to build, but it was a beauty. Back then, you couldn't buy racing motorcycles from the store. You had to build them yourself. So mine was a real eye-catcher. During the construction of that motorcycle, I had lost interest in my job and I had quit. I lasted five months. But two weeks later, I got a call from one of the most prestigious companies in the area. I forced myself to be friendly and talkative during the interview, and I ended up getting the job. The position I had taken was a junior tool designer in the rail car division, and it offered great pay, great benefits, flex time, and a bright future. The main office was a few hundred yards away, but it offered great hot lunches at reasonable prices. My manager was really nice, and because I was a good draftsman, he nicknamed me Golden Hands. Everybody in the office was really nice, and occasionally we would all go out for lunch together. And in the winter time, we would plan ski trips, and practically the whole office would attend. The fall that I started that job, a friend of mine from church said he knew a nice Christian girl and suggested that I meet her. She lived in a city about a half an hour away from me, and my friend arranged a date for us. It was early winter, and it was arranged that we would meet at a performing arts center where they had a battle of the bands night of all the Christian quartet groups. I met her, and she was really nice and eager to show me around and introduce me to a few of her friends. We both liked quartet-style music, so it was a great night. And that date led to another date, at which point I met her parents, and both were very friendly, her dad especially. He was always jovial, but sensitive, because he was always looking for ways to promote his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was diligent in teaching the Bible to his kids, especially during dinner time. This man had led a bit of a carousing life when he was younger, but then he got born again. He had a profound experience with Jesus Christ, and from then on it was pedal to the metal for Christ. And his commitment to Christ rubbed off on his kids, two of whom eagerly spent their spare time doing ministry work. This was a different breed of family, and it was exhilarating being in their company, and the love of Christ was all over them. You couldn't help but feel good in their company. And so this was the atmosphere that this girl was raised in. So no wonder she was so nice and so full of life. I quickly learned that the Bible was really important to these people, and they were eager to teach it to anyone who would listen. And I was eager to learn. Of course, I told this girl what my world was like. I told her about my love for motorcycles and how I had just built a custom motorcycle, a racer. And so one warm February evening, I rode my racer to her place. Her brother liked it, but her dad was not fond of motorcycles and forbade her from ever riding on one. But that didn't stop me from driving my bike home and begin converting it back into a two-seater motorcycle. And then a couple of months later, we arranged that I would pick her up downtown somewhere and give her a ride on the bike. She liked it, but I'm sure she never told her father. After a few more dates, we became girlfriend and boyfriend, and it was like heaven on earth. One of the things my girlfriend taught me was the importance of memorizing God's word. And so I began memorizing the book of Psalms. I got as far as memorizing the first five Psalms. 
So here I was with a fantastic job and a great girlfriend. Life was awesome. And because I had such a great job, I decided to buy myself a new car. It didn't seem right riding around in an old beat-up Chevy Bel Air. We spent many months getting to know each other and enjoying each other's company, and her teaching me the Bible. The longer we dated, the more love we fell for each other, and our conversation slowly drifted toward marriage. And that's when anxiety began to set in for me. I did love this girl, and her family was awesome, but I just wasn't ready for marriage. I was too timid on the inside. My dating anxiety slowly built up until I couldn't handle it anymore. I had to break it off. So at the six-month mark of our relationship, I rode my motorcycle to her house before church on a Sunday evening, and I told her that I had to break it off. And it hurt her so bad. And I was sorry for breaking up with her, but I didn't know what else to do. We went on subsequent dates, but it just wasn't going to work out. The relationship was great for the most part, but it revealed a weakness in me, and I was forced to confront it, but I didn't know how. For the rest of that summer and fall, I just limped through life the best that I could. I knew I was slipping emotionally and that I might not be able to keep my job. That meant I had to get rid of my new car. A friend of mine's aunt was selling a, an old Ford Maverick, and I bought it for $50 and got it roadworthy. Then I placed an ad on a work bulletin board for my car. And lo and behold, the CEO of the company bought that car. That fall, I decided to take an extra long break at Christmas and take a bus ride out west and visit some friends and family. The bus ride was 48 hours in length, and all I could think of was my inability to handle life. I didn't know how to handle social environments. I wasn't comfortable talking to people. I thought, maybe if I could go up to a town way up north, maybe I could squeak by life by living in a small town. I got back from my trip, and I went back to work. Over the previous few months, work was drying up in my department. This was super hard for me because I needed a job that was challenging that would take my mind off my problems. At one point, I was making mathematic flashcards for my boss's daughters, who had trouble with math. So here I was making 3-inch by 5-inch flashcards. 1 times 1 equals, 1 times 2 equals, and so on. And I thought to myself, if this is what it's like to work for a large company, then I don't want anything to do with it. And so one Tuesday in February... I went into work early and gathered all of my drafting tools and wrote a long note to my boss and said, I don't know what's wrong, but I have to leave the company. They were surprised and they wanted me to come back for at least a week, but I said I couldn't. I was just too broken. I came home from work that day and my mom was at a loss. Here I was the oldest of seven boys, and I wasn't showing a very good example of, on how to do life. My mom took me to various places to get help, but no one had any answers. She never took me to our church because she was a little embarrassed about the situation. After six or seven weeks of going for counseling here and there, one pastor suggested that I go see a Christian psychiatrist, and he recommended one. 
By this time, my social anxiety had even prevented me from going to my Sunday morning church services. I finally made it in to see this Christian psychiatrist, and he asked me if I wanted to be an inpatient or an outpatient. And I chose to be an outpatient because I didn't want anyone to know that I was struggling with mental health issues. After hearing my story, he determined that there was a father-son conflict in the home, and he suggested that I find my own apartment. And I knew where my apartment should be. A few months before I quit my job, I had been in communication with a motorcycle dealer in another city near me, and we talked about me working for him. And so that's where I moved into that city. Within two days, I had found an apartment, and I bought all the furniture that I needed to move in, and I was moved in. One week later, I started my new job at the motorcycle shop. My new boss was really nice and totally carefree, so he wasn't affected by my shyness. One of my first tasks was to complete a week-long mechanics training course at the Suzuki headquarters. It was an hour and a half drive, and the boss gave me this loud, rumbling, beat-up 1960s El Camino to go there and back every day that week. There was probably about eight of us in the class. And one of the young guys was just telling story after story about riding motorcycles. He just spun yarns. And I thought, wow, that guy has the gift of the gab. The exact opposite of me. I did enjoy working in the shop, but the social interaction with the customers was really hard for me. A few times my boss took me to a drag strip where we would drag race other motorcyclists. So that was fun. Then he introduced me to the world of enduro racing. An enduro race typically took about seven hours to complete. Each rider would be given a route sheet, and on the route sheet it would show where the checkpoints are and the times that you're supposed to arrive at those checkpoints. If you got there too soon, you would be deducted points, and if you got there too late, you would be deducted points. Most riders had a route sheet holder, the instructions on the route sheet were typed in narrow columns. It's done this way so that the riders could take the route sheet and cut it into strips and tape the strips together end to end and form one long strip for the whole race. Then they would wind the strip into the route sheet holder, which would enable them to scroll from one checkpoint to the next checkpoint. At some point, my boss talked me into buying one of his brand new enduro bikes off the shop floor. He would sell it to me for cost. An enduro race was happening the following day, so I had to hurry up and break in my new motorcycle. So there was a bit of a track behind the shop, and I just rode that bike around and around the track to get it ready for the following day's race. I didn't have a root sheet holder, so my boss just taped the root sheet right onto the gas tank. While working at the bike shop, I did try and advertise my racer components that I had built from that other motorcycle. The fenders, the fairing, the gas tank, and the single seat, but they never sold. But eventually I decided to build another racer, only this one would be twice as powerful. I would start with a Suzuki T500 Twin. The shop was always rebuilding motorcycles. And one of them was a late 70s Suzuki GS850, a shaft drive motorcycle, a great highway cruiser. 
and I was allowed to take that bike whenever I wanted to. And one of the customers announced that he knew two girls who wanted to go to the end of summer exhibition. So we each took a girl on the back of our bikes and we rode to the exhibition that night. I tried to enjoy myself, but all the while I was wrestling the inner problems besetting my life. I didn't stop to think what they wanted to do after we got back. I just dropped off the girl that I took and away I went. Not every bike that I worked on got repaired. Occasionally I would cause some damage. And after six months of working there, my boss and I agreed that it was time for me to move on. By that time, I had moved back home again anyway. My dad always had work, so the natural thing to do was just to help my dad with his kitchen cabinet work. By late fall that year, I had completed building my new cafe racer. And again, it was a stunning looking bike. I rode it over to my old boss's motorcycle shop, and he was very impressed. With that front fairing, the bike was extremely quick, and I had gotten a couple of speeding tickets because of that bike. The anniversary of me leaving my old job had come around, and I realized I hadn't made much progress in my recovery. I thought, there must be a lot of negatives in me. I wonder what would happen if I was to force-feed myself positives. So I thought about what my girlfriend had told me about memorizing God's Word. So I came up with the idea of going to the New Testament and underlining every verse that was an action verse. A verse that told me I had to do a certain thing. And I would also underline every other verse that seemed important. After doing all that, I began typing the verses onto a piece of paper with the columns being three inches wide. Then I cut those papers into three inch wide strips and taped them end to end and inserted them into my enduro racing root sheet holder. That way I could take my verses wherever I went. Whether I was in my car or on my motorcycle, I could be learning my verses. And after starting this regiment, I noticed that within three days, my mood was lifting. So much so that I began looking at the want ads for jobs. And within three weeks, I had found another drafting job. I still felt crushed emotionally, but the confidence that I was receiving from speaking God's word was overriding that brokenness. The first week driving to work every morning was really hard. Half of me wanted to work, but the other half of me that was full of anxiety didn't want to go to work. I had to force my steering wheel to take the cutoffs to other highways in order to get to my job. I just knew what helped me, and that was God's word. As long as I could keep speaking God's word, I could keep generating confidence. And so, whether I was walking in the shop or going for my half-hour lunchtime walks outside, I was memorizing and speaking God's word. About two weeks after I started that job, a girl and I from my church went on a casual 10-speed riding date. And that led to another date. And after four months of dating, I proposed. And we got married seven months later. Looking back, I can tell that I wasn't ready for marriage. But I didn't have anyone who was mentoring me and preparing me for marriage. When you're a quiet person and when you're a firstborn in the family, it isn't natural to ask for help or include other people in your life. Also, when you live a life that is predominantly fight or flight, 
You tend to make decisions based on how things feel and if things are logical. When you don't have solid inner peace, that's what you tend to use when making decisions. Regardless, whatever challenges came my way, I met them with God's Word. The priority of my life was to memorize God's Word and speak God's Word all that I could. We had a beautiful Friday evening wedding in our small town church and a wonderful first night as a married couple, much to my surprise. Our first apartment was going to be on the second floor of a house that was situated on the farm that I worked at, but then we changed our minds and chose an apartment in a city about a half an hour away from us. The first chicken dinner that my wife prepared for us was interesting. Unknowingly, she had purchased a stewing chicken, and when we tried to dig into it with a knife and a fork, it was like rubber, and we just laughed. After getting married and having memorized God's Word now for over a year and realizing what my weaknesses were, I had a sense on what I should watch out for in my life. One was motorcycles. Motorcycles were fun, but for me, they could displace God or other important things in my life. And while approaching the time that I was going to be married, I had an idea for a customized motorcycle, a super low-riding motorcycle. And half of me wanted to build that bike, but the other half of me knew better, knew what was more important in life. And that was getting to know God and to serve Him in this life. Through my scripture memorizing, I came across 2 Timothy 2.4 that says, No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. So I knew enough that I didn't want to get so entangled in life that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which was serve God. We weren't educated on birth control, and after a few months, we realized that my wife was pregnant. There were some challenging moments around that revelation, but our faith got us through. The economy was headed into a recession, and we both lost our jobs that first year. To keep busy, I placed ads in newspapers for doing body work on people's cars at their homes. That money plus employment insurance money was more than enough for us to survive. Nine months after we were married, our first daughter was born, and she was a great baby. We could take her wherever we went. By then, we had transferred into a new church close to where we lived, and we were helping out with the youth. And our daughter was a big hit with the youth. Around that time, a new young family joined our church, and at one point, the radiator on their car gave out on them. A new radiator was $100, and this couple was really tight on their finances. That same week, a newly married Christian couple in our building was praying for us, and they felt led to give us $100. And so we felt led to use that $100 and give it to our new friends who needed a radiator for their vehicle. With tax, the total cost of the radiator was $107. We were grateful that we were able to supply the $100 and only too happy to supply the extra $7 for the tax. But then an amazing thing happened. A couple of weeks later, we got our income tax return back and it came back with a refund. A refund for the amount of $7 exactly. And we were surprised to see how God used us to meet the needs of someone else in such an exacting way. It was great helping out with the youth group at that new church, but I struggled with striking a balance between doing church work and looking for a job. 
employment insurance lasted for a year, and the week that our employment insurance ran out, I found my next job. It was with a mining equipment manufacturer, and it was great walking through the shop floor seeing the different excavators in different stages of assembly. Of course, I was still very shy and always found it a challenge to have to go to different areas of the offices or the plant. I was happiest at my drafting table, drawing away or chatting with the other drafters. For the next 15 years, I was able to hold down a job and enjoy raising my family, but I never really had inner peace. And that lack of peace made me wish I was doing something else for work. At two points in my career, I ventured off into self-employment, once in cars and then in motorcycles. I would enjoy my work, but I'd end up not making enough money, so I'd always go back to drafting. Eventually, my wife and I decided to move so we could have a large lot so I could build a garage. I began designing my new garage. The more time I spent designing the garage, the bigger and more elaborate it became and I finally settled on building a two-story garage attached to our house. I hired out the digging of the foundation and had a friend of mine assemble the forms for the footing. The footings got poured and then I hired a block layer to lay the foundation blocks. From there, my brother and I did the framing and we eventually got the roof on. All of that was a lot of work and I still was quite a ways away from having it completed. And this project, which started out with great excitement, now became a boat anchor in my life. And I entered a state of depression, so much so that I questioned my ability to handle life. And I was admitted into the psychiatric ward of our local hospital. I was there for four days and was discharged again. But I wasn't able to do a lot of work on my garage. It remained erected without siding for a period of about a year. By this time, I wasn't sleeping well even with the medication, and I wasn't well enough to go into work. My psychiatrist kept writing out prescriptions for two weeks off, but after eight weeks or so, I still wasn't getting well, and I just didn't see myself being able to go back to my drafting job. I thought about work as a farm laborer, but then I knew that would affect my long-term disability insurance, and so I felt stuck. I'm usually a person that has lots of goals and very motivated, but at this point in my life, I felt like I was caught between a rock and a hard place. I didn't know what to do, and I slowly entered a state of deep despair, and I became suicidal. I made an attempt on my life, and after being unsuccessful, I was admitted to the hospital psychiatric ward. There I stayed for about three weeks. After two weeks, my psychiatrist asked me how I felt, and I told him that I still felt suicidal. And he became frustrated. He said, I can't keep you here forever. And they slowly let me out on day passes and discharged me about a week later. After a week of being home, I reoffended in trying to harm myself. And I was once again admitted into the hospital. And the same scenario played out once again. I was discharged in about three weeks. And again, after about a week of being home, I made several attempts on my life in one night and only by a miracle was I spared. The police came and took me back to the hospital, and I was there for about a week and a half, and then I was transferred to the regional facility, where the more serious cases go. After about a week being at the regional facility, I thought to myself, I probably can't ever go back to work as a draftsman, but maybe I could learn how to create a website and put encouraging stories on it. 
and that idea re-energized me, and I went from being suicidal to a state of mania as I thought about the potential of this idea. The doctors and my family were reluctant to let me go home again, but after a long meeting, they agreed to discharge me. Upon discharge, I began inquiring on how to make a website, and I finally settled on purchasing software, Microsoft Front Page 2001, as well as the book Front Page 2001 for Dummies, and I began learning about websites. But I also pursued my recovery from mental health problems. The hospital registered me with a counselor who I saw every two weeks. In addition to that, I went to the hospital's day programs. I also met with my pastor once a week. In addition, I learned about a group called Emotions Anonymous, which met at the hospital every Tuesday, so I went there as well. All of these places were filling up the knowledge deficit that I had, and my life was improving. Around that time, there was a Christian bookstore in town, and I would visit that store once in a while, and at one point, he had taken in a collection of used teaching tapes, around 150 tapes, and he priced it at $75. Well, that seemed very reasonable to me, and so I bought them. And so whenever I was doing work on my cars or doing work on my house, I would be playing these teaching tapes. And so these tapes were also filling up my knowledge gap. A year after being discharged from the hospital, I began my reintegration back at my job. And within four months, I was back working full eight-hour days, five days a week. That job came to an end after about a year. And so with the extra time on my hands, I began writing what I was learning in my recovery. Then in February of 2004, I launched my website, strongfaith.net. I chose the theme of faith because that is what you need when you need to launch back into life again. Whether it's faith in yourself or faith in God or both, you need to have an inner assurance that you are well able to meet the challenges of life. I immediately learned about pay-per-click advertising. And since pay-per-click advertising was reasonably new, the cost of mental health keywords was very inexpensive. Yahoo was charging me a dime for every click, but Google would charge me only a nickel for every click. And so every morning I would come down to my computer to a fresh list of people who emailed me for support. I would refer people to articles on my website, as well as answer any questions they might have. Many emails went back and forth numerous times, and that led me to considering doing telephone support. But for someone who has struggled with a speech impediment, this seemed quite daunting. But eventually I did it anyway. I eventually found work again, but I had to go further to find work. My new job was now an hour and a half drive away. But I found a great cell phone plan that gave me unlimited minutes for $75. And so I began spending three to four hours a day speaking to people. I would learn as they told me their stories. And they would learn about God and about the Bible. By then, telephone support was going so well that I began looking at a new frontier, public speaking. I found out about Toastmasters and attended one or two meetings in town. It's a program that teaches you public speaking and leadership skills. I was very intrigued by that. I liked it that you could choose your own topics for your speeches. 
That job came to an abrupt end, but then I found a new job at a very large company. I soon found out that they had their own in-house Toastmasters club every two weeks at another office in the city, and so I eagerly attended and participated in each of their meetings, and I finally gave my icebreaker speech, which is a speech a little bit about yourself. I became so impressed with Toastmasters that when the yearly election took place, they voted me to become the president of the club. My first challenge was to start a Toastmasters club in my own home office of about 600 people. The general manager of the office found out about Toastmasters and became quite intrigued with it and asked me to prepare a presentation for he and all of the other area office managers. And so a newly hired engineering graduate and I gave the presentation and they fell in love with Toastmasters and they asked me to start Toastmasters clubs in each of the area offices. And so, in addition to leading my own Toastmasters club, I began holding general interest meetings at the other offices. To start or charter a Toastmasters club, you need to sign up 20 people who agree to be founding members of the club and pay their yearly annual membership fee in advance. Only holding meetings every other week can take a long time to find 20 new people, and it took me 24 weeks to charter the club at my home office. But the next club only took me 16 weeks to charter, and the third club took me only 8 weeks to charter. Toastmasters is a great club and really sells itself. A severe recession took place shortly after that, and a lot of us, including myself, lost our jobs. So I turned my sights to doing peer support work in my home city. For years, a local church had been holding weekly peer support groups, and they specialized in recovery from addictions, spousal abuse, and childhood trauma. But the program didn't address anxiety or depression. So I decided to write a Bible-based program that helps people find victory over anxiety and depression. After six months of writing, I located a church that would rent to me their church basement every Wednesday for $25 a month. And we launched our new group, and we had good participation in that group. A year later, with me still not being able to find work, I decided to go out west for work and found a job. Being away from home was hard, as I was only able to come back every two months for a few days. But I used my time wisely. Almost all my after-work hours was devoted to doing peer support and to using the new program that I had written. I was there for four and a half years and made many friends and was able to share God's healing truths to many people. Shortly after returning home, I was inspired to expand the program and publish it. And today we have a manual that covers many topics that continue to bring help and hope to hurting people. The program is called the Victory Tips Program. It contains 29 detailed tips that help you find happiness. It has the Happiness Basics section, as well as a Practical Tools section, including six detailed core beliefs and six detailed affirmation compilations. The ebook is available for free at kobo.com. That's K-O-B-O.com. Do a search for the Victory Tips Program. A print version of the book is available on Amazon for $15 US or $20 Canadian. And there are currently two versions of the book. One version uses the King James version of the Bible. 
and the other version uses the New American Standard Version of the Bible, a more easier to understand version of the Bible. If you feel that you could use some help in getting through some of life's struggles, then contact us. We offer free one-on-one -on -one support, and we currently offer four conference calls a day. See our website for details at victorytipsprogram.com. In addition to conference calls, we also have a podcast site and our own radio station. Visit our website for details on those as well. I hope my story encourages you to include God in your recovery. And I believe with the help of our group and a good local church, you will find victory in your life. Forty-five years ago, I learned about a Savior who came to take our sins away. I have since found out that he came to take our depressions away. I encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and to go a step further and find him as your own personal healer. For those of you who are ready to receive Christ as your Savior and healer, allow me to lead you in a prayer. Repeat after me. Dear God, I see the sins that I have committed. I believe Jesus paid the penalty for my sin by his crucifixion. I receive your forgiveness for my sin. And I ask you to come into my life and help me to live the rest of my life in a way that pleases you. Amen. Call me or email me that you've made your decision for Christ and let me know how you're doing. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.